Let us pray. God of us all, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, I uh, got out on one of my favorite bike rides. It's, it's out in the gorge. I like to start at the, the Glen Auto Park there in Troutdale. It's where the Sugar Pine Drive-In is. And if you don't know that, you should find it for sure. Right out of the parking lot, you cross over an old steel narrow bridge that spans the Sandy River. And then the first couple miles of the ride are along the river, and you get great views. And then it sort of breaks off, and you go up to Springdale, up to, up to uh, Corbett, and you end up at Crown Point. Vista House. And if you've ever been there, and I think everyone's been there, you get these great views out to the east and to the west of the whole Columbia, or that stretch of the Columbia River. And then the ride drops down. Of course, if you're on a bike, this is the best part of it. And the trick is to let the cars clear out so they don't slow you down, so you can just fly down as fast as possible. But when you get to the bottom, the ride really becomes spectacular because that's where the waterfalls start. And from there, you ride by La Terrell Falls and Shepherd's Dell and Bridal Vale and Joaquina and Multnomah. And then if you keep going, you get out to Oneonta Gorge and out to Horsetail Falls. And then you turn around and just get to ride back by all of them again. And it's a little bit of a chore getting back up to Crown Point. But then you get the coast down to Sugar Pine Drive-In, and it's a pretty good deal. It's a spectacular ride. And the whole way is surrounded by the waters uh, that have formed the geography of the Columbia River gorge. So I did a little homework this week, and um, geologists say that beginning about three million years ago, the Columbia River, what we call the Columbia River now, began to carve its path out to the ocean, carve through periodic uplifts and volcanic outflows. And about a million years ago, it, it more or less found the path to the ocean that it follows to this day. But it was about 15,000 years ago that the gorge actually took its form. So that's back at the end of the last ice age. And there were some glaciers that formed a big ice dam on the Clark, River, Clark Fork River up in Montana. And behind that ice dam formed a glacial lake that held an enormous amount of water. And as the water continued to accrue, it would finally put so much pressure that the, periodically it would breach the dam and a wall of water would just come surging down to the west through the Columbia River Valley and out to the ocean. They say that the volume of water when that dam breached was greater than the volume of all the rivers that flow in all the world, and it flowed at 45, 65, 80 miles an hour. That's how the gorge was carved out. Before that, you had streams of water coming down off of Mount Hood, joining the Columbia and flowing out to the ocean. After those floods, they call them the Missoula floods, that's when we got the hanging waterfalls that now drop down to the floor of the gorge that I got to ride by a couple of weeks ago. Water runs through the geography of this place that we call home. Water has always run through our lives. And so it's not surprising that it runs through the scriptures too, as we just heard. It runs through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. In the beginning... The Spirit hovered over the primordial waters, and God called forth creation, called forth order, called forth life from the chaos. And Eden, our garden home, emerged. And they say that in Eden, 
It never rained, which if you live in the Pacific Northwest, especially this past spring, really hard to believe. But they say it never rained there, and every morning instead, a stream rose up from the earth and watered the ground. That's at the beginning. At the end, there's a river of life. In the new heaven and the new earth that God is creating out of the chaos, a stream flows through a fertile valley. And in, fact, in chapter 22, the last chapter of the, of the Bible, we hear the promise, nothing accursed will be found there anymore. But in between, in between Genesis and Revelation, in between Eden and the end, the waters get a little choppier. And, and murky, that's right. In the scriptures, uh, water signifies the ongoing tension uh, in the world and in our lives between chaos and God's creative Work. And so there are a lot of deeply symbolic stories in the Bible, some of which we'll read this summer, one of which we heard just this morning. There's the story of Noah and the ark, and the flood standing as judgment on the chaos, on the wickedness of the world. What's interesting to me about that story is that in the wake of the flood, humanity doesn't really change very much at all. It's God who changes. God promises to never again destroy the earth. God sets a rainbow in the sky as a sign of God's commitment to the flourishing of creation. There's the story of the Exodus, really the pivotal story in the Old Testament. After centuries of slavery, God liberates the people of Israel from oppression in Egypt. And as they begin their arduous journey through the wilderness, God parts the waters of the Red Sea for them to escape. God makes a way where none seems possible. And then there's the tragic comedic story of Jonah. And every kid who's ever gone to Sunday school knows the story of Jonah. He's thrown into the sea to save a sinking ship, and he's swallowed up by a large fish, Jonah and the whale. That's the comedic part of the story. The tragic part of the story is Jonah's refusal to embrace people who regard, he regards as outsiders, as enemies. His refusal to embrace people whom God loves. Water flows through the Older Testament. It runs through the Gospels, too. Jesus is baptized by John in the waters of the River Jordan. And later, to anyone who would listen, Jesus says, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. The Scripture has said, Out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Water runs through the Bible. And it runs through us. Literally. You know, it's funny the things that we remember. I, I remember reading a while back a speech that John F. Kennedy gave when he was president. It was 1962. He gave this speech at the, uh, at the opening of the America's Cup sailing competition. And he said, it's an interesting biological fact that all of us have in our veins the exact same percentage of salt in our blood that exists in the ocean. And therefore, we have salt in our blood, in our sweat, in our tears, we are tied to the ocean, and when we go back to the sea, whether it is to sail or to watch it, we are going back from whence we came. Now, it turns out we don't have the exact same percentage of salt in our blood as in the sea, but it is remarkably similar. We are part of this world. We are part of this creation story. Water runs through us. It runs through our lives. We wake up and we take a shower, and we make coffee, and we water our gardens, we go out to the coast. Water's essential. And water's a source of beauty and wonder and joy. But like the symbolic stories in the scriptures, um, there are times that we are parched, that we are dry and thirsty and anxious and weary. 
In the times that we feel lost at sea, we're confused, we're uncertain, we're vulnerable. And there are times it feels like we are caught in a deluge, that we are overwhelmed, that we cannot find any solid footing underneath us. And the thing is, it's not just the stories of our particular lives. The water runs through the story of all of our lives. And here in the Pacific Northwest, there were settlers who displaced indigenous people who had always relied on water, the waters of the river, of the streams, of the ocean to sustain their lives. In the West right now, we're in the the midst of historic droughts. Uh, There have been, uh, and there will be again, I'm sure, uh, wars over water rights. And we are all of us the source of and susceptible to the impacts of a changing global climate. And the cruel irony is that the ones who are most vulnerable most often are the least responsible. So when we find ourselves in in chaotic, in dangerous, in uncertain waters, uh, what do we do? Where do we find our way? How do we hold on to hope? Well, in the Gospel of Mark, there's a story of water. It's the story that Joan told the children this morning, a story of chaos and danger and uncertainty. In Mark 4, Jesus is in a boat with his disciples, many of them fishermen. They set out to sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A great windstorm arose, and those kids did a pretty good job with the sound effects this morning. Uh, Waves batter the sea. Water begins to fill the hold, and they awaken Jesus, who is asleep in the stern. Jesus was a builder, a tecton. I suspect he was more comfortable on land. It may be that he just didn't know enough to be afraid, but the pros with him, his disciples, the fishermen, they are scared out of their wits. The danger is very real. And the writer tells us that Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the water, peace be still, the storm ceased, the seas settled. Miraculous story of a boat saved at sea. Remarkable in its own right. But there's more to it. It is about the creative, redemptive, saving power of God that was present in Jesus. Back in the book of Genesis, God spoke into the primordial chaos and creation emerged. Here in the story from Mark, Jesus speaks into the chaos of the storm and peace settles over the water. In Exodus, God acted to create a way where there was none. And in this story in Mark, Jesus acts to save the people when they had lost all hope. And I don't think this is pressing the symbolism too far. The ancient Israelites feared the sea. They ventured into the water only with great hesitation. They didn't schedule sailing regattas for the fun of it. They much preferred to stay on dry land. For them, water was the domain of demons. Sea was under the sway of Leviathan, the sea monster. It was a place of danger, a place of chaos. And and to underscore the sea as a murky, mysterious, dangerous place, Jesus uses the language of exorcism. He rebukes the wind. He says to the water, be still. It's the same language that he uses earlier in Mark 1 when he encountered a man uh, possessed with an unclean spirit. This is a significant story. Jesus does what earlier in the scriptures only God could do. He overcomes chaotic powers and creates shalom, creates peace. And so this is a story about the saving, uh, redeeming, uh, peacemaking power of God that was in Christ Jesus. It was good news for his friends in the boat that day, and it is good news for us still because our lives can get chaotic and be dangerous and uncertain. 
There are times we're not sure what to do. Times we're not sure that there is a way forward. Times when our minds are spinning and our chests start to tighten up as fear gets its grip on us. But the gospel promises that Jesus is with us in the midst of those storms, speaking creative and powerful words of peace and hope. Now, sometimes the storms don't dissipate quite as quickly as they do in the story today. And sometimes we're left adrift longer than we want. But we are not alone. And so this story calls us to live by such faith rather than reacting to our fears. It calls us to trust that God is good, that God will always be with us, to trust that God can become our hearts and our minds, to trust that God can create a way when we cannot see it, to trust that God can overcome the chaotic powers of the world and create shalom, create holy, just peace on earth as in heaven. The prophet Isaiah lived by that kind of faith. So he called the people then, and he calls to us still, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come. Come to the waters. In Revelation, John, the author, here's the invitation, Let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. We are still invited to come to the water, to come and have our thirst for love and justice and grace and peace slaked to come and be imbued with courage and wisdom and strength and hope, to come and feel um, in our bodies, to feel in our souls the kind of life that God intends for all creation. You know, two summers ago, my wife and I uh, went camping in central uh, Oregon. And one day we went to the headwaters of the Metolius River. It's near Camp Sherman. How many people have been there? Yeah, somebody's really happy in the back. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very cool spot. The Metolius is, it's got to be as beautiful a river as there can be. And so it's remarkable to go up and see where it begins, to see where the waters come out of the rock. Uh, but because it's such a cool spot, they have to protect it. There's some barriers up. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure we would all just trample it. Well, that same day, we went to another spot not far away. We went to Jack Creek, and there's a trailhead there. And it's, it's harder to find. In fact, in my memory that day, there, was no other, there were no other cars in the parking lot. But from that trailhead, you can walk about a mile along Jack Creek. It's a, it's a really a beautiful little stream there. And you can come to the place where Jack Creek begins. And few people ever go there. And so there's no need to protect it. There's no fence. And you can walk right up to the spot where the water gurgles out of the rock. And you can kneel down and you can drink straight from the source. It is the purest, the cleanest, the coldest, the most satisfying water that you can imagine. On a hot summer day, it is almost miraculously rejuvenating. And that's the invitation. Come to the water and open your hands and open your heart and open your soul, open your mind and drink straight from the source. Drink in the love and the joy and the peace and the strength and the mercy and the goodness of God. And then go out and bear witness to the kind of life that God has created us all for. Maybe so.